Okay, type two, turn two, swipe two, scroll two, somehow get to Mark chapter one. That's where we're gonna be. Guys, uh, we are in the gospel of Mark for 20 weeks, okay? That's half the time a woman is pregnant. We're gonna be here for a while. You're gonna know this gospel really, really well by the end. Okay, we're actually just tell you this, we're in this gospel till the end of the year. So literally we're doing this gospel and then we're gonna do big Christmas Eve services then we're gonna launch a new series. Here's what this means. If you wanna open up to Mark 14, you should write in Mark 14, buy Christmas presents. Okay, that's right when you need to be buying Christmas presents. <laughs> We've got a few sermons left and it'll be over. Hey guys, it's gonna be an incredible time. Here's what we're doing. We're going through the gospel of Mark. Let me just take a minute and tell you the difference between Mark and Matthew and Luke and John because well, there's four gospels. Well, why are there four gospels? Well, think. Well, by the way, they're each called the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, you get it. It's one gospel, it's four perspectives. Um, think about it like four great documentaries and they each have their emphasis, right? So if we're talking about Matthew, he's writing to the Jews. That's why he's always talking about the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills it. If, we're, if Luke, Luke writes to the Gentiles, he's a doctor and his heart is for people to know the teachings of Jesus and Jesus' heart for the financial and spiritually poor. So that's why some of your favorite parables are only found in Luke, uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, parable of the prodigal son. John was written for the intellectual elites of the day. This is why he's talking about the logos and going back to these Greek words and going back to eternity past. And, and that's why, by the way, I always would use the gospel of John when I was at Duke's campus because it was a heavily intellectual environment. That gospel worked really well there. Uh, so we're in the gospel of Mark and Mark's different. Mark was written for the Romans. It's fast, it's action oriented, the word immediately is used 42 times, I believe, in the Gospel of Mark. It's gonna be used eight times just in chapter one. I mean, Jesus is a man on the move. Jesus is uh, a man for others. Uh, there's very little actual teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It may surprise you. You read all these other Gospels, you're like, okay, there's a Sermon on the Mount. That's really helpful. Oh, there's all these parables. Not really in Mark. Mark is much more what is Jesus doing than what is Jesus teaching. And it's written by a guy named John Mark. Real quickly on him, he's a young man. Um, we believe church tradition tells us he was discipled by Peter. We know this in part because Peter, and I think 1 Peter 5, calls Mark his son in the faith. And, and so church history, church tradition tells us that basically Mark was a disciple of Peter. And one of the things Mark did was he wrote down this account. So when you're reading this, you're reading an account from really one of Jesus's nearest and dearest disciples, Peter himself. Now, what we're doing, just so you know, why are we spending 20 weeks, okay? I mean, that's a decent amount of time, but it's not that much time in Mark. I mean, you know, we could spend three years in Mark. In fact, I would probably enjoy that. And I would just take two or three verses and, and you'd be here for all of medical school in the Gospel of Mark, right? <laughs> like, that was a great time in medical school. What books did you go through? Mark, that would be it. Um, and we're fine with that. But, but one of the reasons that we, just so you know, we take, think it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian, and we wanna know our congregation, and here's what we know in our congregation, the average person in our church is here for three to five years. I know you think you're gonna be here for longer, but then your parents get sick and you have to help them. Or then you get pregnant and then you go live near your parents. Or you get married and you move, or you get a new job opportunity, or something opens up in Raleigh and Charlotte and you're out of here, or you go decide to get more education somewhere else. And so we understand that hopefully we'll have you for longer than that, but we, we kind of think people are here for three to five years and how do we hit a bunch of different books? So this year we've been in Song of Solomon, that was wisdom poetry, and we've been in New Testament epistle, well, that was James. And we've been in Old Testament narrative, well that was well first and second Samuel, and part of First Chronicles, and that was you know, Old Testament narrative. And now we're gonna be in the gospel. And so if you'll turn to Mark chapter one, verse one, we're gonna dive right in, and uh, we're gonna kind of be flying over this book, going quickly. And I, I'm even gonna have to probably simplify and summarize a lot of it. Here, here, let's begin, it says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So you don't have to know your Bible very well to go, the beginning, huh, the beginning. There's some other book in the Bible that says the beginning. Now you could say John's gospel, 
where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Okay, but, but John's gospel is written after Mark's gospel. So Mark's writing the beginning. What is he making us think about if we know our Bible, even just a teensy, teensy bit? Probably Genesis, in the beginning. Here's what Mark is trying to communicate early on. He's trying to communicate the significance of Jesus Christ. And here's what he's saying. Jesus Christ coming into the world is as significant as the creation of the world. So the greatest miracle God's ever done is creating the world out of nothing, okay? He's done a lot of other miracles, including the resurrection, which is unbelievable. But the greatest miracle God has ever done is create the world. And here's what beginning means. Beginning also means, by the way, that there's a middle and there's an end, right? We don't believe in reincarnation. We don't do Eastern thinking. It's like, no, no, life is headed somewhere. There is a point, there is a purpose, everything's headed somewhere. This tells us there's a beginning. Now, here's what this also means. God is the great starter. Great, God is the great beginner. God is the great initiator. Think about this for a second. I mean, God, God initiates. By the way, this is what makes Christianity unique. Every other religion says, well, why don't you start a relationship with God? Well, why don't you seek God? Well, why don't you find God? Well, why don't you kind of, you know, metaphorically build a ladder and climb to God? Christianity says, no, 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 no. God comes to us. So three ways, creation, right? I mean, did you ask to be created? No. I mean, God creates the world and decides to share it with us. It's like this unbelievable thing. It's like, well, thank you so much, God. Food is amazing. There's so many beautiful places in the world. A sunset's amazing. You created this creation. You initiate it, then you share it with us. Secondly, God initiates in revelation, okay? Now, revelation is, well, God lets himself be known. And that's really important because you're only gonna know somebody if they let you know them, right? Every guy had some girl in middle school or high school or college that he was trying to get to know that she was like, you are, you are not gonna get to know me. And the guy realizes it doesn't matter. doesn't matter who I text, what I text her. doesn't matter what conversations we have. doesn't matter what questions I ask. She's a vault. She's not gonna open up because it's always more dependent on the person being known if anyone's gonna know them. So God forfeits his personal privacy and lets us know him. So God, think about it, initiates in creation in, in uh, revelation. And now today we see God initiating in salvation. Do you see this? It says the gospel, or it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we have to ask this question. What is the gospel? Well, hopefully we understand this because the gospel is the very center of Christianity. The gospel literally means, literally means good news. And that's hard for us because we live in a society where we don't even trust the news. I mean, I don't mean this in any political way. I think it's probably on both sides. It's like no one trusts the news. Or even tell people, don't go to that website. You can't trust that website. And there was a time where we could somewhat trust the news. It's like, well, there's three or four channels and fine. You read the New York Times and you read the Wall Street Journal. You watch CNN, you watch Fox News, you watch MSNBC. They're all kind of biased, but we kind of trust them. Well, that day's over for most people. We don't even trust the news anymore. And guess what? The Bible says that Christianity is good news. Well, we live in a culture of bad news, right? I mean, what was it for two years with the pandemic and the COVID and the lockdowns and the slowing the spread and the masks and the vaccines and the government shutdowns. It was like every day you turn the news on, you're like, I can't handle, I can't handle, I'm depressed. I can't handle all this bad news. It's like all it was, it's like now you turn it on, you're like, monkeypox, what is going on? <laughs> Too much bad news. Our soul was not created to handle this much bad news. So God says, Christianity is good news. Now, let me ask you this. You don't have to answer out loud, so hopefully you'll be honest. Do you see Christianity as good news? I hope you do. Most Christians don't act like it's good news. Parents sometimes do a terrible job at discipling their kids because here's what Christianity is, all the fun things you can't do. We don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang with those who do. You get it? It's like, that's, that's Christianity? No, thank you. That's all it is. It's all the things I can't do in life. It's all the fun things my teenage friends get to do and I can't. It's like, no, Christianity is supposed to be good news. And as soon as you see it's good news, well, then this whole thing about sharing the gospel makes a lot of sense. 
Because that's what you do. You share good news. What do you do when you get engaged? Well, you share it, obviously. You get pregnant, you share it. You buy you the great home you're excited about, you share it. You go your dream vacation, you share it. That's just what you do when life goes well and you've got good news. Now, here's the interesting thing. It says it's the good news of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say it's the good news about Jesus Christ. You notice that? Every little word of scripture matters. That's a, yes, the gospel is about Jesus, of course. But before the gospel is a proposition, the gospel is a person. Now, here's what this means. And this hopefully will bring it down for all of us. Um, what makes Christianity good news is that it connects us to God through Christ. So let me give you a couple things about the gospel that anyone could think is good news, but they maybe not, don't fully understand what it means and how it connects them to God. So, okay, say you say to somebody, it could be anyone out on the street, say the same people in the video. We said, hey, do you want your sins to be forgiven? It's like, well, who's gonna say no to that? I mean, how arrogant and ignorant would you have to be to say, no, I don't want my sins forgiven? Everybody wants their sins forgiven. They will, especially on judgment day, but what, what, what is the good news of forgiveness of sins? Sin is out of my way now. I can have a relationship with God. Sin is no longer a border or a boundary or hindrance to my relationship with God. That's good news. How, how about getting a new body? When there's a new heavens and new earth, the, the Bible teaches that we're all getting new bodies. Now, the, you, you meet people who are older and aging and they have illness and injury and sickness and suffering and they're losing their eyesight and they're in pain all the time. And guess what they say? Well, I would love a new body. Well, guess what? Let me tell you this. Everybody wants a new body. Just so you know, you don't have to be Christian to want a new body. The Christian says, I need a new body because I need all of my five senses and all of my faculties completely active and energized so that I can enjoy God. Or how about going to heaven? Everybody wants to go to heaven. They just don't want God to be there. And we kind of laugh because we know it's true. Some of you don't want God to be there. It's like, well, you can go to heaven and how about all your pleasures are just there, sanctified. And all your friends and family are there, but God's not there. So many people might say, I'm okay with that. The good news of Christianity is that it connects us back to a relationship with God. He said it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now look what he says next. He tells us how we hear this gospel. In verse two, he says this, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. So basically he's like, guys, the whole Testament is pointing to and preparing the way for Jesus. He's basically writing these people, he goes, hey, you know that book that you love to read? You know the 39 books of the Old Testament? You know how there was all these longings they are gonna be fulfilled in Jesus? You know how there were all these prayers? They're gonna be answered in Jesus. You know how there were all these hopes? Well, they're all gonna be fulfilled in Jesus. You know, there's three, about somewhere around 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, especially Isaiah 53, just this picture of who the Messiah would be. But look what he says here, verse two, continuing. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he's quoting an Old Testament passage of Isaiah and a couple other places that talks about sending a messenger. Now, some of you know this, he's talking about John the Baptist or John the baptizer. Um, now, let me tell you a little about this, this is important. So back then, we're kind of spoiled today, right? Well, we don't even realize it. We're really spoiled with, well, everything from air conditioning to indoor plumbing, but we're really spoiled with communication and travel, right? I'm still amazed that I can get, go down to Charlotte, get on an airplane, and I can be on the other side of our country in four hours. And there's a two hour time difference. So it feels like, what, did I just teleport? I mean, it's just like, if you've ever had that experience, like, whoa, we, right? we, we live in this unbelievable time where it's like, you can get in your car and you can go to the beach or the mountains in three or four hours. Just go find a highway, go, go east if you want the beach, go west if you want the mountains, whatever. It's like, unbelievable. 
they didn't live in that kind of time, right? Travel's always been, up until really recently, travel's been very hard for everybody, and very few people traveled very far, at, if at all, their whole lives. Secondly, communication, right? We're spoiled. It's like, well, just send the text and send the tweet and put it on Twitter and, you know, put it on social media and call your mom. And it's just like, you know, let's FaceTime. Even though we're in a different part of the world, let's FaceTime each other. It's like unreal. Well, back then what would happen is the reason that a king would send out a messenger, that's what the verse is talking about. I will send a messenger before you. The whole idea was back then, like a king would conquer a new land and maybe that land wouldn't know that they were conquered. And how would you know? There's no television. There's no radio. There's no internet. So you'd send a messenger and the messenger would go to the people and he had two jobs. And I want you to listen to this because these are your two jobs because we're supposed to be messengers. His job was to prepare the roads and to prepare the people. I told you, people didn't travel a lot back then. So sometimes it's like, well, we gotta go to this town and it's 10 miles away. And then the messenger goes, he goes, dude, these roads are old. No one's traveled on these roads forever. In fact, guys, what we need to do, there's actually a shorter distance. Let's cut a new road. Or, or then you gotta prepare the people, right? You'd have to tell them, hey, maybe you didn't know this, the king died and his son's now the new king. Or maybe you didn't know this, there was a treaty or we won a war and now you've got a new king. That's what, kind of what the messenger would do. Now think about this for you, metaphorically and spiritually. It's like, well, how, what's the principle here for us? Our job is to get people ready to hear about Jesus. That's it. That's what John the Baptist did as a messenger. That's, and, and so here's the first thing we have to do. We have to figure out what is the best path to reach this person? Jesus is the only way, but there are often many ways people come to Jesus. Jesus is the only way, but there are often many ways that people come to Jesus. You know this because sometimes you email us at the church and you say something like this, oh, I've got this cousin and she's super smart. And she's real into science. And she believes in Darwinian evolution, but I see some spiritual interest. Do you have a book? What are you asking me? Help me with this path. Parents deal with this, especially if you have more than one kid. You're like, uh, what's the path? I took Johnny and Johnny and, I, Johnny and I would go on walks and talk about the Bible and do devotions and Johnny came to Christ. And I did it with Bobby and it didn't work. Well, you're saying, you're saying one, we're gonna pray and, and fine, keep using that path. Maybe we need to try a different path. Well, what happens when you pray? I pray my friend would come to church. You're like, well, I, maybe God would use this path. Or sometimes you pray about a retreat. Or I mean, all of us, if you grew up in any kind of student ministry or college ministry, you're like, oh God, would you use this conference? Would you use this camp? But so many parents pray that for their kids. It's like, God, would you, would you use this mission trip? It's like, whatever the path is. Now there's the path, by the way, this is how we as a church think of technology. That, I think that's the biblical way to think of technology. Technology are new paths to reach new people. And you see this, or, uh, well, we could do podcasts. Oh, we could do YouTube. Oh, we could do social media. We have, could have a nice website. And these are new ways to reach into people's, like never before we're able to reach into people's lives. But then he says, you have to prepare the people. Now you have to, that's hard to do too. It's like, why? Because sometimes people have wrong thoughts on the king. Do people have wrong thoughts about Jesus? Yes, right? You talk to someone about Jesus. Sometimes you have to like clarify their misunderstandings. You're like, well, isn't he just a good teacher? You're like, no, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, he taught. No, isn't he just an example of like how to suffer and like be a good person? And like, isn't his death just like a model for us? You're like, no. There's like one verse about him being an example, but no, he's a substitute. Well, wasn't he just like a moralistic, you know, legalistic teacher? No, right? Sometimes you have to clarify and help interpret people's past. It's like, you know, you had a bad experience at church. It's like, well, maybe that wasn't even a good church you were part of. Maybe you didn't even, inter maybe you weren't even talking to Christians. Maybe you were talking to religious people. So anyway, the whole point is what we see John doing, he's a picture of what we all should do. 
He wants to make the path straight. What is the simplest and most straightforward way to, the, to this group of people? And then, how do I prepare those people? But look, his, even though he wants to make the path short and straight, his message is not soft, okay? The path, let's make it short and straight. The message isn't soft. We say this here all the time. The gospel is offensive, but nothing else should be. The message itself is offensive enough. Look, we'll see the message in verse four. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What did John preach? Repentance. What does Jesus preach? We'll see in verse 14. Repentance. What does Peter preach on the day of Pentecost? Repentance. What does Paul preach and get some stoned in all the cities he goes to? Repentance. Now, no one wants to talk about repentance, right? Because we live in a society that talks about tolerance. Now, look, there was what tolerance used to mean. Here's what tolerance used to mean. Tolerance used to mean, you know, I disagree with you and I think you're wrong, but I will endure you and put up with you because we live in a pluralistic society and that's the only way someone's gonna survive. And, and, and Christians used to be able to go, fair enough, because that's a good type of tolerance. I disagree, I think you're wrong, but I'll endure you. And hopefully you'll do the same with me. Today, what does tolerance mean? I affirm you, I accept you, I approve you, I celebrate you, everything about you. Even your alternative lifestyle, even your goofy ideology, even your unnatural sinful behavior, right? And what you'll see, depending on where you work, and some of you work at some really progressive places, certain college campuses, certain businesses in our city, you know, you know they, do, they do the diversity training, yeah. You show up for all that stuff. It makes you feel weak and sick to your stomach and you sit through all this stuff. And, and what, basically, here's what, here's what the most mature person looks like in a tolerant environment. The person who can act like nothing is gross and nothing is goofy. Have you ever been like, dude, does anyone else think saying they, them is goofy? Shh, we can't say that. We smile and everybody says it's okay. Don't we think giving double mastectomies to young girls and changing their whole body type is not right? No, no, we don't, it's fine. It's what they feel. Don't we think giving puberty blockers to young kids that is the same medicine that they give to sterilize sex offenders is wrong? No, 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 we just do whatever. We live in a society where the goofy and the gross is that we're all supposed to just go, uh-huh, yeah, that sounds fine if that's what you want. Nothing's wrong here, nothing to see here. Here's a hall pass, let's keep going, hurry up, quick, go along soon. The Bible teaches repentance. Repentance is this, you're not okay. I'm not okay. You're the problem, I'm the problem. You need to change, I need to change. That's repentance. You know, repentance is not hating your sin. I mean, anyone can hate their sin. You'll meet the alcoholic, he hates your sin. All of us hate our sin at two in the morning when our conscience wakes us up and our spouse is sleeping and we're like, what am I doing? Every, you don't have to be Christian to hate your sin. You don't have to be Christian to run away from your sin. You'll hear stories every once in a while. Oh yeah, I used to. Oh man, I had a gambling addiction. I was a workaholic. I was a womanizer. You know, There's no Christian testimony there for a lot of those people. Repentance is I turn from my sin and I turn to my savior. That's repentance. Repentance is, is a change of mind and heart that produces a change of life. So like, and you have to understand this because this is the main message of Christianity. The, the, the modern word, by the way, for repentance is paradigm shift. That's what it means. Paradigm shift, what does that mean? It's like, well, I think about things differently, therefore I live differently. You'll hear, I had a paradigm shift about money. I realized God owns it all. It was a paradigm shift. And when I realized that, it changed. I, I had a paradigm shift about sex. I had a paradigm shift about parenting. It's like, well, it's the same thing as repentance. 
Now, we believe, and as a society, we don't often believe in repentance anymore. You're not going to hear that word a lot. You're going to hear the word rehab. Now, we're not against rehab. I always have to put airbags around everything I say. We're not against rehab. Rehab's great. Rehab is normally like, you know, well, some people look at, you'll even hear people talk about prison as rehabilitation. That's one type of rehab. Well, just put them away for 10 or 15 years and we'll figure it out. You hear about rehab is like we confronted dad because dad drinks too much. He wasn't doing anything. And we sent him to Arizona for eight weeks. It's like, okay. Now, what, the problem with rehab is if it's only external, what happens is after rehab is often relapse. Rehab to relapse because I haven't fixed the internal thing. We have to go, we have to have an internal change that affects us externally, not try to change things externally and hope things are going to change on, in the internal. I, I don't know if you heard about the, there's companies now for celebrities and sports figures where they will rebrand your image if you've had a scandal. It's like, well, I got caught with a DUI. I got caught with another woman. I got caught, you know, doing drugs. And these, especially sports people, but celebrities, they will hire PR companies to basically come in. Well, you know, here's a boatload of money. Would you please rebrand me? Some people, we don't know for sure. Some people think this is what happened with Kobe, right? Kobe's accused of all these things. Kobe apologizes, Kobe Bryant, and he never wears number eight again. Ever. It's like, you were eight forever, now you're 24? Yeah, I'm rebranding. Maybe he was changed on the inside too, but if I change something on the outside in hopes that everybody thinks I'm changed on the inside. Christianity is I change on the inside. God changed me on the inside. Eventually, people see it on the outside. So John preaches repentance. Look what he says. Verse five. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt. He's dressing like Cam Newton, okay? I mean, just dressing crazy. (laughs) Around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Very quickly, what John the Baptist does is he humbles himself and he exalts Christ. He doesn't do what we try to do is we try to look like Jesus. And, and across time, that's sanctification. You will look more like Jesus. But, but he looks more like someone who needs Jesus. And he exalts Jesus and says, Jesus is so great. I'm not even worthy to do the lowest job in society, which is to be the person that when people come in with dirt and feces on their shoes, I take it off and I clean it for them. He said, Jesus is so great. I'm not even worthy to serve him. Well, this begins to catapult Jesus in the ministry. But Jesus comes in verse nine. Look, it says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Okay, so Jesus comes to get baptized. I always say this, but a good Bible reader should be a confused Bible reader. So you should read this and go, why is Jesus getting baptized? In fact, that's actually what John's gonna ask in a different gospel. John's like, ah, I don't need to, you baptize me, I don't need to baptize you. Because right, because what is John to say? repent, confess your sins, be baptized. It's like, well, Jesus doesn't need to repent. Jesus doesn't need to confess his sins. So why is Jesus baptized? Well, we get in another gospel, Jesus says, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, why was Jesus baptized? To identify fully with sinful humanity and to obey God in every area of his life. Now, why is this so important? Here's why this is important, because this is what I think even Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, like many of you are, people when they think about Christianity, they normally only think about how Jesus died for them. They don't often think about how Jesus lived for them. I don't know. So say we took like the three best and brightest kids from our kids' ministry and we brought them in here. And we're like, all right, sat them on stage. All right, guys, we want you to tell us, what did Jesus do for you? And if they're the best and the brightest and their parents are also disciple them and they're great, they might say something like this. Jesus died in my place for my sins. 
and he rose from the dead, and now I can follow him and go to heaven. And we'd all clap. And we'd be like, that's amazing. Oh, thank God they understand the gospel. The only thing that they forgot is Jesus' life. This is a common, this is why I want to talk about this for a moment. This is a very common misunderstanding in Christianity. Even the old confessions. So if you, you know, I told you I'm a recovering Catholic. I grew up Catholic. You say, the, you say these old confessions, and they, here's what they all say. Born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day he rose again. Guess what the only thing they forgot? His life, his whole life. All they forgot was 33 years of his life. It's like, look, if Jesus only needed to die for your sin, he could have parachuted in and hung out for the weekend. <laughs> right? It's like, well, that's all I have to do. I mean, it's gonna be unbelievably, I'm not, I don't mean that in a you know, disrespectful way or irreverent way. I'm, I'm just trying to make a point. Jesus actually didn't just need to die for you. He needed to live for you. Why? What's well, because you're saved by works, just not your works. You're saved by the works of Jesus. So here's theology 101. What the cross does is get you back to zero. <laughs> the cross forgives you, okay? So think about, I don't know, say you had $10 billion in debt. The cross pays your debt so you get back to zero. And you're like, well, thank God for that. We, that's why we sing and celebrate the cross. But God requires two things of your life. Number one, that your sin be punished so that you be forgiven. So you need to, so one is that, okay, I need to be forgiven then because I don't want my sins to be punished. The second is that your life be perfect. And so what Christ does is he lives the life that we are supposed to live. Now, did you notice, by the way, in his baptism, God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. What a picture of the gospel. God the Father is pleased in his son before his son does anything. He's going to live from the acceptance of God, not try to live for the acceptance of God. Wait, I haven't, I haven't fought temptation yet. I haven't died for people yet. I haven't done any public ministry yet. I haven't made any disciples yet. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus steps out. Now look what happens in verse 13 or verse 12. He's led by the Holy Spirit. It says this, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And then verse 13 says this, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So Jesus goes out and the first thing he does, is he goes into the wilderness. Now follow this. There's a lot of symbolism in the gospels. Jesus goes through water into the wilderness. It's like, well, let me think for a second. Is there anybody else who went through water into the wilderness? Yeah, the people of God. They went through the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness. What is, now wait a second. Why is Jesus there for 40, 40 days? Well, that represents the 40 years that Israel was there. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is obeying in the place of Israel. Where Adam and Eve failed and where Israel failed, Jesus Christ is obeying. Now, we see in verse 13 that we have an enemy, right? We, we have a spiritual enemy. I don't have a lot of time to talk about Satan. We'll look at him in, in the weeks and months to come in this series. But we live in this crazy society. We live in a world that's disenchanted. There is no supernatural. There is no spiritual. Except in the weirdest way, people want to be spiritual. We live in a society, watch this. People live, believe in heaven, not hell. People believe in God, not Satan. People believe in angels, not demons. People believe in forgiveness, just not sin. And, and so what we see here, and this is gonna be the rest of the gospel, Mark, we're introduced to it right here, is the battle of two kingdoms. That's the whole gospel account. It's gonna be the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. And what we see here is when Satan tempts, and maybe this will be the most helpful thing for you as we talk about this, notice that temptation is always personal. If you read this account of Jesus in the other gospels, they give a longer account. And, you know, Jesus is tempted to eat food because he's fasting for 40 days. And Jesus is tempted to prove he's the son of God, even though God just declared he's the son of God. All temptation is personal, right? This is, you know this in your own life. That's why things that tempt you don't tempt me. And things that tempt me don't tempt you. 
And, and it's a reminder that we have a personal, evil, intelligent enemy. And you'll know this. That's why your temptations are so personal. You're like, oh man, every time my spouse leaves, I'm tempted to do this. It's weird. It was almost like this was orchestrated that my business partner couldn't travel with me and I'm alone in the hotel and now I'm feeling this unique temptation. There's all these temptations that are personal to us. What we see Jesus do is Jesus obeys in our place and then he heads into public ministry. Look at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here's Jesus' first message. Jesus comes preaching. He says, he says, you know this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Let's talk about each of those. First, he says time. Now, there's two words for time in the Greek. There's chronos and there's kairos, chronos and kairos. Now, chronos, you can hear the word we get from that chronologically, okay? Chronological time. So think when you see the word chronos, it would be the most common word used in Greek for time. And it basically, you might say what time it is, or this is the time it is. What, what chronos means is Think of it this way, sequential time, okay. Then there is kairos, and kairos is not uh, sequential time. Kairos is special and significant time, okay? And Jesus uses the word kairos here. He basically says, my coming into the world is significant. The, the, probably the best words we would have for this is historical and historic. Now, often sports announcers and commentators, they'll use them wrongly. They'll be like, that game last night was historical. It's like every game ever played is historical, <laughs> Your, your whole life is historical, but not everything that happens in your life is historic. So, I mean, most of us are probably old enough in here that we, at least at some level, we remember 9-11. Every day is historical. 9-11 was historic. It changed everything for everybody. We think probably forever. It's like the TSA has a whole new job after that. I remember going and seeing my dad get off the gates at the airports, and I can't do that anymore. I couldn't do that anymore because you couldn't go past security without a ticket. I mean, they, everything changed with the airline industry. It was a historic day. It was a Kairos moment. Jesus says, this is a, he says, the time is fulfilled. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you notice that? It's at hand. God is near. God's not distant. God's not removed. God's not far away. But what I want to focus on just for a moment is the kingdom, because ah, this, is, this is such a large topic that we'll dive into. I'm introducing a lot of things today. The kingdom of God it is clearly Jesus' main teaching. No question, it is his main teaching. But everybody debates, like if you get into the nerdy, seminary, theological world, the Bible, you know, geeks and nerds, of which I would put myself in that category. But, but basically, you, there's all these debates. What is the kingdom of God? What is the connection between the kingdom of God and the church? How much of the kingdom is in the future and how much of it is a present reality versus a future hope? There's all these questions. Well, let me talk about the kingdom for a little bit. Here's what the kingdom is. The kingdom of God is, where, is God's reign and rule. That's one way to think of it, real simply. Or the kingdom of God is when the future age, the age to come, breaks into our present age. Let me try to explain it more. Let me try to simplify it the best I know how. The kingdom assumes two things about our lives that I think we, no, well, you don't have to be a Christian here to agree with this. The kingdom assumes two things. Something's gone wrong and we can't fix it. So, I mean, right, you know, it's like, why do you pray kingdom come? It's like, well, because something's wrong here. All you have to do is go through your Facebook feed and you see something and then you think to yourself, oh, thank God that didn't happen to me and my family. That's such a terrible thing. I can't imagine that happening to somebody because you just see something or, it's, or just go walk the hall. We have two major hospitals here. You know, go walk the halls of Novant. Go walk the halls of Wake Baptist. Go over to Brenner's and go over to the Childhood Cancer Center. And you're like, Lord, kingdom come, please. Something's broken here. 
You go just talk to people and you hear all the sad, sad stories. Most people you meet, they've got a sad story, especially if they're older or, or they're connected to somebody who has a really sad story. So you go, okay, kingdom come. It's like, Lord, okay, there's something wrong. The second thing the kingdom tells us is we can't fix it, right? I mean, during the enlightenment, people thought that they could fix it. I mean, not Christians, but like there were people who thought like, basically all we need to do is educate people. And then what did they find out? All you got was smart sinners. <laughs> and then they said, well, maybe it's not education. Maybe it's technology and maybe it's science. And, and then what did you have? Really technologically advanced sinners. I mean, what is the 20th century? Massive wars of very smart, very well-equipped with weapons, sinners. And so what the kingdom is, is the kingdom is anytime the future age to come breaks into the present age. Let me give you many examples. When Jesus, we'll see in the future, when he calms the storm, that's the kingdom coming. Hey guys, we shouldn't have Hurricane Katrina. Hurricanes and tornadoes and massive storms, not part of God's original creation. These water was never meant to hurt us. Let me put it back in its right place. All of the healings of Jesus are pointers. To, it's the age to come breaking in. I know there's illness and injury. We're gonna go to a place where there's no more illness and injury, where we're gonna be healed forever. Every time he confronts lies with truth, every time he confronts evil with good, every time he casts out a demon, it's saying, I, I have power over the supernatural. And finally, when he, when he promises the forgiveness of sins, it's a pointer Here's what Jesus is doing in the kingdom. Well, here's what the kingdom does. It reverses the effects of sin and suffering in the world. And that's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. If, if there's anywhere, and if you're a Christian, I would imagine there's somewhere you want the kingdom to come. Here's the, here's the key, if you wanna know this. If you want the kingdom to come, God's will needs to be done in that area. And so all people are like, I want the kingdom to come in my marriage. It's like, do you? Because that would mean that you're going to have to do what Ephesians 5 says. You're going to have to suffer and sacrifice and serve one another. I don't know if I want the kingdom to come. Well, the kingdom comes when God's will is done. So Jesus comes and he comes preaching this, but he's not just a preacher. His priorities are actually the souls of men and personal discipling. Look what he does in verse 15. In verse 15, or sorry, verse 16 says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, a couple things. One, this is a unique moment because what Jesus is doing is he's, he'll be called a rabbi in other places. And what Jesus is doing is he is acting he is a unique type of rabbi. So back then, all of the, the way, here's how it, the way it would work with rabbis. The disciples always chose the rabbi back then. And that makes sense. You think of, that's kind of how it works today. It's like, you want to get into the best schools. Here's what you need to do. You need to, you know, I, I'm going to get the best education. I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to build all the relationships that I can. And what happens is all these disciples, they'd memorize parts of the Bible. And then they would go to the rabbi and say, am I good enough to follow you? And the rabbi would either say yes, or the rabbi would say no, or the rabbi would say, come back later and do some more things. Jesus reverses all of it because Jesus is the rabbi who calls the disciples to follow him. The disciples don't go to him, he goes to them. And what's interesting, if you look at who he calls, the first four guys he calls are fishermen. Now, you've probably heard before that Jesus' followers were a ragtag bunch of blue collar guys who didn't know anything. It's like, well, there's probably some truth to that with some of his people that were following him. 
And, and he had a unique heart for the last and the least and the leftovers. But if you look here, we actually know that these first four fishermen, or at least two of them, were wealthy. How do we know that? Well, it says they were casting the net in the sea. So there were two types of nets back then. There was the net that you jumped in. Poor people, they jumped in and they would have to, you know, they didn't have as good, it's like today. It's like, well, they couldn't afford the good technology. Okay, well, then you have to jump in the water with the fish and try to get them. They had to throw it in the water. Well, that's what wealthy people had. They're, they're uh, fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Well, that was the best fish that there were. Even to this day, there's still exotic fish there that are, are uh, exported everywhere else. Well, how about their father has a business? Father Zebedee's got his own, fi this is a multi-generational fishing business. And it says they left their father and the hired servants. All the, here, all I'm trying to say is there were different socioeconomic classes that followed Jesus. All, all of, we're all, all over the map. But the reason I bring this up is the first people that Jesus calls to follow him are successful businessmen. Who are the last people that follow Jesus in society today? Successful businessmen. And I don't know how to reach them all. Part of it is speaking their language. Jesus does not over-spiritualize it. Do you want to pray and receive me into your heart? The average business guy's like, uh, no, I don't. Would you like to repent, enter the kingdom of God, follow me, and leverage all of your skills for something greater? Uh, maybe I could do that. He speaks their language. They begin to follow him. Now look what happens next. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum. This is like Jesus' headquarters. He keeps coming back and going to here. This is also where we believe Peter had a house. And they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So he, yeah, he valued public worship. He valued the teaching of the word. He, he valued gathering together with God's people. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This is so important. Jesus has authority. What does authority mean? Well, it's the word author, right? It's the whole idea of he had substance. He had weight. He had gravity to him. So much so it says people were astonished when he taught. Now we live in like the anti-authority age, right? It's like uh, kids rebel against their parents and students rebel against their teachers and citizens rebel against their government. It's like, dude, authority is a great thing. Authority is meant to serve those under you. Authority is what brings order and authority is what brings stability. And what I love about Jesus, Jesus has authority. I actually think, even though we live in this goofy, anti-authoritarian age, I think especially young people are dying for authority. It's like, I don't, it's like everyone wants to share their, this is my perspective, this is my idea, this is my opinion. It's like, look, does anyone know what, what they're doing in life? Is there anyone going, follow me as I follow Christ. I, by God's grace, I know how to do this. By the way, what the Christian has is a derivative authority. It's an authority from God based on his word. It's like, we have the authority to speak God's word and not be silent where God has spoken. So Jesus has this authority. People are astonished with it. Look what happens. Verse 23, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Sometimes the devil and his demons show up at church. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, literally, shut up. Now I know that's not appropriate. I know we're not supposed to say that in church. But that is literally in the Greek what Jesus says. Now, you know, translators make it sound nice. Be silent. That's not what he said. Um, and come out of him, and the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. Jesus moves from obscurity to popularity, and later he'll move to rejection. That's the threefold movement of Jesus' ministry. Obscurity, no one knows me. Popularity, everybody loves me and follows me because of my healings and feedings. 
and rejection. Rejection especially by the authorities and leaders and religious people of the day. And immediately, verse 29, you can see that word again, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. So always a good deal, or always a good idea to invite Jesus back into your home. And so we're about to see a miracle happen because Jesus is invited into the home. Now, Simon's mother-in-law, now let me just point this out. Simon is Simon Peter. Catholics think Simon Peter is the first pope. The pope says that if you're a pope or cardinal or bishop or priest, you can't get married. And this is a little ironic because Peter is married, okay? Peter has a mother-in-law. There's only one way you get one of those. <laughs> you get married. Pointing out the obvious here. Okay, he lay, she lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve him. Great, great picture of, you know, when you're healed and set free, you're healed and set free to serve. But it ends like this, verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons and they would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is what is called at the very end, the messianic secret motif. And you're like, that's a big phrase. Well, if you can order a vente caramel macchiato, you know, with oat milk, you can, you can, you can remember this, okay? The messianic secret motif. And here's the whole idea that in the gospel of Mark, nobody knows who Jesus is. The demons know who he is. God the Father knows who he is. He knows who he is. Nobody else knows who he is. And something strange happens. We'll see this next week too when he heals the leper. Now when he casts out a demon, don't tell anybody who I am. And you're like, wait a second. Isn't like the great commission go into all the world and tell everybody who you are? Like, what do you mean don't tell anyone who you are? Well, this is the messianic secret motif. And here's the whole idea. People can't fully understand who Jesus is until he goes to the cross and rises from the dead. In fact, the first time that Jesus is actually gonna tell his disciples, go on out and tell everybody who I am and go two by two and go into towns and villages, is after he tells them for the first time, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And now that you know and understand that, now you can go in all the world and tell. And, and so here we are at the end of the first sermon in a 20-week-long series, I mean, we're gonna be here for a long time. We're kind of a picture, you're moving into an Airbnb and you're unpacking all of your clothes into the drawers, okay? <laughs> we're gonna stay here for a while together. But I, but I wanna bring us to a few things for us to consider as we close this first passage and this first chapter in the Gospel of Mark. The first thing is I want you to see that in the Gospel of Mark, especially in chapter one, God meets people where they are. Do you see this? This is what Jesus does. Jesus meets people where they are. It's like, where do, where's the first two places we see Jesus in the Gospel of Mark? In the wilderness. It's like, do you wanna know the number one place God meets with people? I can tell you from experience and from scripture, it's in the wilderness. Someone shows up here and they're crying. It's like, what's happened? My marriage is falling apart. My finances are out of whack. My kid is sick. My daughter is rebelling. Guess what the wilderness is? It's a place where it's really dry. And God often wakes people up in the wilderness. And the great thing about God is he comes to you and he meets you in the wilderness. But guess where the second place we see Jesus meeting people? At work. Isn't that amazing? It's like, all right, Jesus meets you in the wilderness and that's half of people's conversions. The other place Jesus meets you is at, at work. It's like, well, what a great vision of you telling other people about Jesus at work. Do you know that most of your witness hopefully should happen at work? You know, someone takes their job at your business or wherever you work or at your school and they, they, they don't know that they're gonna get to meet you and then they're gonna get to meet Jesus. Because what, what a great place to talk about Christ. Jesus meets people in the wilderness. Jesus meets people at work. Jesus meets people in their homes. 
That's probably the most testimonies you hear in church. It's like, well, I just, thank God. I had great parents, or I had a great brother, or I had a great uncle, or there was one person, grandma in our family, she told me about Christ. And remember, Jesus' main message when he meets somebody is the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the kingdom of God is not something you work for. Jesus doesn't say, the kingdom of God is at hand, earn it. He literally says, the kingdom of God is at hand, enter it. How do you enter it? You enter it on your knees. You enter it saying, I bring nothing to this except for, the only thing I bring to my salvation is my sin. But what we see is Jesus, when you enter the kingdom, you begin to follow Jesus. I mean, that's what he says, right? He preaches about the kingdom and then he sees four guys and he says, follow me. That's why here we call discipleship. We say being a disciple is following Jesus and helping others find and follow Jesus. But, but here's what happens. Whenever you follow Jesus, to have a new beginning, you have to have a necessary ending. There's certain things you have to say no to. You see the guys, they had to drop their nets. Other people had to leave. The other guy had to leave his father. The other two brothers they had to leave their father. I, what do you need to leave to really follow Jesus? Some of you, you know, as soon as I say it, you know it's a relationship. It's like an unhealthy relationship, unhelpful relationship. For other people, you need to leave religion and wrong thinking. For other people, you need to leave rebellion. Because guys, here's what we're doing. We really believe as a church, I want you to hear me say this. We really believe what Jesus says when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. We are not playing church. The reason that we wanna see the church advance is because when the church advance, the kingdom breaks through. It's like, well, I wanna see the kingdom break through somewhere. Well, then go plant a church there. I wanna see the kingdom break through somewhere in the world. Let's go send some missionaries there. That's how it breaks through. You know, in your life, the way the kingdom breaks through is it breaks through one prayer at a time. Do not despise the day of small things. It breaks through one conversation at a time. It breaks through one gospel presentation at a time. It breaks through one testimony at a time. It breaks through one Bible study at a time. And we are going to be a church that advances because we want to see the kingdom of God come. And our prayer, if you'll pray with me right now, is gonna be, Jesus, your kingdom come, and Jesus, your will be done. Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer. Lord, I just wanna give us a moment to respond personally. The Bible says that we are to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. I just want us to take a moment and think about where we want the kingdom to come. Many of us would probably say our kids' hearts. Well, if the kingdom's gonna come, then we need to commit to have your will be done, Lord. Others of us would say in their struggle with sin, we wanna see the kingdom come, Lord. Let your will be done. Others might say their marriage, Lord. I wanna give us just a moment also just to respond and say, where, is there anything I need to leave? Some had to drop their nets, some had to leave relationships. There is a cost to discipleship, Lord. Let us consider that cost afresh as we read about these first disciples, Lord. Give us the grace to leave what we need to leave and to follow you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.